0: A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential, as we seek to rise above the ordinary, and the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word, Authors, literary critics, columnists, and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And welcome to another episode of The Reading Room. Now, during lockdown, I heard so many people saying, Wow, I'm going to have all of this time. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read. I'm going to read every book that I've never read before. I've got all of this time. I'm going to have fun. And how many people actually did that? I was one of the people who said, I'm going to read everything. I'm going to read all those books I never read before, and I'm going to reread the ones that I loved. How many did I manage to get? Probably about two or three, which is actually quite sad because I'm a voracious reader. And I spoke to a number of other people who were also those people who were going to read lots of stuff and have always read. And they found that they had a difficulty in actually engaging with books for some reason, especially in the first three weeks of lockdown. So here we are some 300 odd days later into a, a lesser hectic lockdown. But there's one person I heard about who continued with their reading habit, in fact, read even more. So We're going to find out about the effective habits of, of how should we say this, a highly effective habit of a book reader. Uh, in studio, we've got uh, Bronwyn Williams. And you, I believe, have read over 200 books or more since the beginning of
1: lockdown? Uh, not quite that much. Probably about one every two, three days. So I think I got through around about 130-ish last year. That's not
0: a, uh, a bad amount when you consider some people say, oh, well, I read two books this year. How much do you generally read about that much, like two, three books a week?
1: Yeah, pretty much. But it depends what I'm reading. So there's a vast difference between like a 200 page nonfiction <laughs> sort of thing that some, you know, executive pulled out and, and, and wrote to further his career and a serious novel. It might take you a couple of weeks, but on average, it kind of works out to around about a book every two, three days.
0: But you're a bibliophile, I would imagine. You can,
1: you, are you? Because I mean,
0: you, we, we, just before we came on, we were talking about you're not into nonfiction particularly.
1: No, I do. i probably say I read about 50 nonfiction non-fiction and fiction. Um, for my work, I am a futurist and a trained analyst. So a lot of my work does involve trying to synthesize large amounts of information and to connect dots between very different sectors of the economy, of the market and of society at large. So I do tend to read very widely, probably mm. much more widely than other people that are into reading, either just for pleasure or just trying to get through business books because it's the thing to do.
0: Okay, yeah, that's something that I'm afraid I don't actually delve into at all. I mean, okay, so for those people who don't know what a futurist is or does, please just give us a quick rundown on that before we get into what you're reading.
1: So for starters, we don't predict the future. We rather try to explain what is possible and what is probable so that our clients who tend to mostly be in the corporate sector and the company that I work for, Flux Trends, have just a little bit of a head start on what's coming so they can sort of spot opportunities and mitigate for threats before they become reality. Okay, and you write about it as well? Yeah, I do do a fair amount of writing. As I said, my on my website, what I generally do with my life is I read things and then I write about them and then I speak about them too. So <laughs> I kind of have to do quite a lot of reading in order to be valuable in the role that I am in.
0: There's a lot of extrapolation.
1: Yes, exactly. A lot of connecting, connecting dots between different things. And for me, I think that fiction is just as relevant to that as nonfiction. So nonfiction, you're reading for the latest sort of theories or to sort of get an understanding of what the big ideas about time and what past times and perhaps future times are. But fiction tends to sort of connect those dots that kind of put some muscle in between the, the skeleton that you can get from nonfiction and academic knowledge in that every fictional book is placed in some sort of time and place and it always picks up on what's going on in the real world or in the imagined world. So for me, it's valuable. If everything that I read, pretty much anything that I read, I can connect something to the work that I'm working on.
0: But you mentioned to me that uh, one of the things that you find A bit difficult about, say, people writing in this age at the moment, is being able to incorporate technology into fiction. And there are not really that many good fiction books coming out in our era. Would you like to expand upon that a little
1: As a reader, and also someone who's tried to do a bit of writing, I do find it quite uncomfortable to read stories that involve things like computers and cell phones for several reasons, because they sort of break the narrative, they kind of cheapen the story, but there's also pretty much no way to leave them out without leaving holes in your narrative. And unfortunately, technology does tend to date quite quickly. I mean, I'm sure we've all noticed this from watching movies that were made in the sort of 80s, 90s, or even the early 2000s, how sort of clunky and disconcerting the sort of cell phones that people are using and the types of technologies they use in their day-to-day lives really are. So I think it's quite difficult for writers to write a sensitive, stunning novel about the human condition when you've got to find a way to incorporate the iPhone.
0: <laughs> and WhatsApp.
1: <laughs> exactly. There's not much romantic about WhatsApp.
0: <laughs> but it's inter- it, it, it works quite well when you're watching a movie because I think you know you, you it's set there and you're looking at a movie that is set in a specific... I mean, that's why we can sit and watch something like Pride and Prejudice and, and have no kind of like, why don't they have telephones? And if you're looking at a movie like Sleepless in Seattle, where they've got those old, or you've got mail, which was like, we look at those computers and even my children look at it and go, that's really weird. But I'm like, that's the 80s. This was the beginning of everything. It's easier to accept it when it's a visual thing, except when you're trying to do it in your own brain, why does it become clunky, whereas it's not clunky on a movie?
1: Well, the author literally has to write it, right? They have to say, she picked up her phone, she checked her messages, you know, and it sort of of breaks the narrative. It's quite different to a novel that was set maybe 50 or 80 or a few hundred years ago, when people got letters occasionally. Because that's the thing with technology in our real lives, it's, it's a constant interruption to write an authentic story about a human in today's life. They're checking their phones hundreds, maybe even thousands Thousands of times a day. Mm. So either you ignore that, and that's not really true to life, because it's how people get information, engage with with lovers or with with colleagues or whatever the case may be, or you have to try and find a way to actually write that. And that's that's hugely disruptive, particularly as a reader who's trying to understand a story. So I think it's a challenge. I haven't seen many people have done it well, and I do think that it's quite interesting that quite a lot of the fictional books that are on bestseller lists tend to be set in times and places other than our own. Either looking back or looking forward forwards or looking forwards we are definitely having a renaissance in the science fiction genre too because you know in times of crisis and also because we've just come over the sort of the turn of the century people are sort of thinking about sort of futuristic type things a bit more than they perhaps were doing in the 80s and 90s when everyone was pretty much more focused on making money in the here and now.
0: It actually boggles the brain quite a lot because it's not stuff that you would think about normally You pick up a book you read it I think I've I've become a lot more forgiving when it comes to I I, but I do prefer I'm reading books that are set in the 80s even though they're they're contemporary fiction have just come out now but the people have set it in back in the 80s so it's easier to read I can't think of anything that I've read recently that's actually been published within the last decade to be honest with you
1: I have to agree. I think that that fiction does need some time to mature, like a good wine. You know, it'll keep. If it's any good, you can can read it in 10 or so years' time. I think that we get a bit obsessed with sort of bestseller lists. I think that's also probably why many people don't enjoy reading so much because we kind of hear, oh, everyone's reading this particular book and you try it and you don't really enjoy it. You don't understand why you don't like it. But it's because things are popular due to sort of quantity rather than things to do with with quality. And that's just sort of basic network effects. And when it takes all sort of cycles and our very sort of algorithmically driven lives that we have right now. So what, what becomes popular becomes even more popular. But that doesn't really necessarily mean that it's good. As I like to say, when it comes to sort of getting a recommendation as to what you should read next, you should take the weighting of someone who's read, say, 200 books in the last year a lot more seriously than someone that's read two, because yes. that's what generally tends to happen with bestseller lists, you know, like your mom, your aunt, your friend, your colleague says, oh, this was the best thing I read last year, but he only read two books. I mean, like, what are you basing that on? <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's I think, true. I think readers could get a lot more enjoyment out of reading. But going a bit further back into the catalogue, it's not quite the same for nonfiction because quite often, especially in my line of work, I, I read that so that I know what's going on, what the latest ideas being published are, the latest things that are in discourse, because it's mm-hmm. kind of background white noise, knowledge that I'm expected to have in the role that I do. Okay, well, taking
0: it back to getting recommendations, there's been a proliferation of groups on places like Facebook where there's like the readers list and whatever, and people are saying, oh, I love this book, and others are like, Why? And a lot of the time people can't actually explain why they like something or not. And then you'll read it and go, that was probably one of the most awful books I've ever read. Have you ever recommended things to people to read and they've looked at you and gone, that was absolute nonsense?
1: Yeah, I suppose it happens quite a lot, but books are personal. It depends what you're reading them for. If you're reading them for knowledge or if you're reading them for pleasure, you're going to come at it with very, very different set of ideas before you go ahead with it. The one book that I've recommended to lots of people and and nobody has liked it is The Solitaire Mystery by Justin Garda. He's the same writer that wrote Sophie's World. Mm. that was quite a quite popular back in the day, but nobody liked The Solitaire Mystery, but I absolutely loved it and have read it many times.
0: Okay, what are the books that you could not do without? If you had to go, say, right, I'm going off to a desert island now, I've had enough of life, I'm taking 10 books with me.
1: Ten is too many, but I, I would definitely take my, my top nonfiction, one that I just love to read over and over again, would be The Remains of the Day. I've absolutely loved that book. It really spoke to me. Uh, and it's just a sweet, simple story. It's not particularly, you know, like groundbreaking in any way. But I like the, the observational sort of effect on on how he observed what was going on with people. Mm. Very, very difficult times. And the, the character sketches there I thought were quite profound. And on the nonfiction space, I love Eric Hoffer's The True Believer and Economics in One Lesson. I think that everyone should read that book. Book just the world would be a better place if everyone just read those two books, <laughs> and they're quite short and they're quite skinny, so and everyone has the time to read them. So everybody really should. <laughs> okay, I'm making lists.
0: I'm going to have to write them down because I'm hanging my head in shame at the moment. I haven't read either of those. Actually. And then, but
1: to pull up the rest of the ten books, I just take um, as many Terry Pratchett books as I could fit in because I do. I do like my Discworld. I'll just take as many of those as I can. And if you've only given me ten to take with, I'll have to take the the Watch sub series, which should get us up to ten.
0: <laughs> you see, this is the thing. I mean, a lot of people I know actually reading Terry Pratchett all over again I've got three friends who are completely obsessed with it and they're going around trying to find and I sold all of mine I had the entire series and I, I don't know why I thought well I don't know if I'm going to read them again and I didn't have space and I decided to only keep the classics and and like really good reference books and things and I thought well those are the ones that are kind of like they come and go but you would never get rid of a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for instance. That was one that had to stay with me. Why do you think that suddenly the certain genres or certain writers suddenly become, maybe to a specific like range of people, become relevant again, that we might have read them like 20 years ago and we suddenly think, oh, I'm going to reread all of them.
1: Well, I think that's a very good point, especially now in what's happened with like lockdowns and like a pause in, in real life. I think that people have been looking for nostalgia, and there's like key sort of trends that you can see there. So people are going back to what is comfortable, what makes them feel safe, and that might be music that you used to like, or a book that you like used to like reading, to a sort of space and time when when life felt more more comfortable. Mm. And we've also seen this in sort of trends as to what people are reading at large, and we're seeing that back catalogues with pretty much all publishers worldwide are doing better than front end catalogues. So in other people are looking not at those new releases, but rather looking at older books. Mm. And that's also because people are trying to get through the classics and tick off their lists, like you were saying, but also because you're wanting something that's comfortable that you know comes not just recommended by someone, but actually has stood the the test of time.
0: Well, standing the test of time, you've got these lists, the top 100 books of all time that you should have read. And I find some of them heavy going. I have read most of them. Are there any, say, for instance, that... Everybody says, you have to have read this book that you've absolutely hated and thought, well, that's a number of hours I'm never going to get back again.
1: Oh yes, there's one. And I tend to finish everything that I start because I just tend to take quite a lot of time to choose what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think carefully about the sort of list that I want to do, the knowledge I want to acquire or just the stories and authors I want to get to know. But the the one that I actually just could not complete, I got about around 280 pages in and I decided my life was too short for this was Don Quixote. I just absolutely could not. <laughs> rather watch the movie. I was not even slightly amused. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? That's actually so...
0: I must. Admit, I don't think I've read that. I might have read it when I was a kid, but I don't actually remember. But that's the thing. I mean, you've, if you've read your entire life, and especially, I mean, I'm, I don't know how old you are. You, I think you're kind of a lot younger than I am. So in the days an before... an baby. <laughs> <laughs> you're an 80s baby. Okay. So bef- the days before TV, you wouldn't have really grown up with that, where we used to read a lot because there was radio and there was, you know, we listened or we read, and that was that. We would sit and look at what books are the books that were coming out in those days. And we had to really kind of go into the theater of the mind because it wasn't just a visual thing for us all the time. But um, I sat and I thought, no, I have to read the books that everybody says. And then I finally found out that, you know, I haven't read The Catcher in the Rye. And I haven't read, what's that one with all the boys on the island? I don't even know. I mean, Lord I'm, of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, that book, that's the one. And I finally got around to reading the one that everybody says, oh, you. this is the one book, the top on the list of all books that you should ever read. And <laughs> I looked at this and I just thought, you have got to be joking. Why did I read this book? And that was To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm sorry, I just really couldn't get through that. I, don't, I didn't understand the point of it. And I, I, there's a lot of books that you look at and you think, should this really be a classic? So I want to know which ones you haven't read. I oh, haven't read War in Peace which is probably terrible. Really, no, isn't that a bit heavy going?
1: <laughs> probably, but uh, for, for if people that know me will probably be quite surprised at that. But yeah, I, have, I haven't got to that yet. And I haven't read all my Dickens, but I found, I found the idea of Dickens nicer than actually the experience of reading Dickens, much like Neil Gaiman. I feel exactly the same way mm. about his, the idea of his stories is fantastic, but actually reading his work is a bit painful. Like his actual prose is a bit plunky. Octavia Butler is another one over there that everyone says you should be reading, especially now. Yeah. Sort of, <laughs> but once again, great ideas, but, but really bad writing. There's quite a lot of that. So you're sort of glad you read it at the end, but actually getting through it is. Okay, I'm going to throw some names at you. 1984. I have read that. Adventures of Huckleberry
0: Yeah, one of those books. I mean, have you read Animal Farm as well? Have you read all yes, of the books Yes, I've, I've read
1: most of all. Well, but yeah. I, I must say I actually prefer his non-fiction to his fiction once again. I think there's powerful ideas in his writing. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, a long time ago at school. Any of Sherlock Holmes. I've read most of Sherlock Holmes. I haven't read the full collection. I used to get them out one at a time from the library. I went through a phase when I was around about 12, 13 years old yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you read all of the books. Yes. Yeah, okay. I've, I've got the full compendium at home, but I haven't gone back to read it. But I've read like his various adventures at various times, yes. which is actually quite nice. I think it's more fun than reading the whole lot in Absolutely, one go. Yeah. Okay, The Alchemist. Uh, no, that's that's not the sort of thing that I would be interested in. The sort of the... Popular serious fiction, as I'd classify it, is probably my done, least favorite genre. I you just haven't done Carlos in.
0: Castaneda and, you know, The Rings no, of Power and all no. of those things. And Love in the Time of Cholera?
1: That I have. I, I quite enjoyed that, but that's about as close as I'd get to that genre. It has to be a little bit weird for me before I'm interested. So you're not like the, the top bestsellers kind of reader. No, pretty much if it's on the if it's on the contemporary bestseller list from the last twenty years, I probably avoid it like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> Alice's
0: Adventures in Wonderland.
1: That I have, yes.
0: it's an absolute must. And the wind for in the willows has
1: got to go along with that one, right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And all of the inner uh, the inner in Blighton Blighton, stuff. Yes.
1: The
0: Famous five, Secret Seven, Nancy Drew, all Correct. of those when you're Tick-tick's a kid. All those boxes yep. so <laughs> Anna Karenina hello Karenina. My, my, we're gonna get into the pronunciation. Karenina Anna Car- why did yes come I have
1: out? read that too. okay <laughs> that is all of her Alexi's it's, it's <laughs> like wading
0: your way through a lot of things as I lay dying
1: that I absolutely loved absolutely loved it. okay we're
0: just going on the top 20 here okay beloved Toni Morrison
1: No, once again, that would fall under the the sort of alchemist type category for me. Okay, Book Thief. Now, this is one that I see
0: this coming up time and time again, and I haven't read it, and I'm thinking, should I read it? Because everybody, when it was made into a movie and everybody was raving about it, is it worthwhile reading it or not?
1: I read it. It was sweet, but I think it's designed for children, not for adults. Mm. It was a bit simple.
0: Yeah, but the movie was was more kind of aimed at adults.
1: Yeah, and I know a lot of my friends really enjoyed it. I was like, it it was fine. (laughs) <laughs> okay, brave. Now this is about
0: futurism, not specific. I mean, it is dystopian. Okay, Brave New World.
1: Correct. Yes, I have read that.
0: Okay, so that, even though that was sort of seen as maybe being a little bit science fictiony, but not on the kind of like we have spaceships side of things.
1: Oh, it's pretty science fiction-y. I mean, you've got people being grown in labs. It's been It's quite yes. prescient, actually. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's not that kind of science fiction where the people are like you know, Star Wars type thing.
1: Yeah, it is, but it's other sort of speculative threads that are pretty common tropes these days. So it is sort of sci-fi canon, I yeah. suppose. Brothers Karamazov. That I have read extracts of. I have not read the whole book. Okay. Catch-22. I've read that. Brilliant. 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 Absolutely fantastic. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, long ago.
0: And then there's Roald Dahl and Charlotte's Web and those things, which are fantastic. And then The Call of the Wild, which I find quite interesting at number 20.
1: I have not read The Call of the Wild.
0: Saw the movie. It was wonderful. Um, And Clockwork Orange.
1: Yes, did not really get it. But how old were you when you read it? That's the question. I I was a grown up. Okay, I read it when I
0: was th- in my teens. So okay. it was, I think it was different. But it would have
1: been radical back then, but also we've sort of been there and done that. So it back it then, how to old be, do you think I am? When <laughs> <laughs> the book came out, it was like completely yeah. shocking. But like, I think we've been so desensitized as a society. It was all a bit like, oh. Yeah, the whole <laughs> thing, thing about, all the fun it's about? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I suppose
0: it was, it was very radical, and especially if you were 13 or 14 years old and reading it. And I mean, it was one of those things that, you know, your parents had. But um, on that list of books, I mean, they are all kind of classics, I also find people who are going, "Mm, okay, so there's these classics, but should we read them or not? And one name that comes up quite a lot is Anne Rand. Now, how many people do you know that have actually read Atlas Shrugged? Not just kind of say, oh, well, no, Anne Rand is like so this, that and the other, but they actually haven't read the books. How many people do you know who have actually read it?
1: I know of myself and and Taryn, who lives in the UK, who I have not seen since school. That's it. (laughs) But why do you think then people are always going, oh, well,
0: I don't like Ayn Rand if they've never read it?
1: Because it's embarrassing to admit these things in, in the sort of society that we have. There's a phenomenon known as social cooling. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, which is basically sort of self-censorship. So it's sort of lies of omission where you won't say things that, that will upset people.
0: Why would it be upsetting to admit that you read or like Ayn Rand? Because
1: it's sort of it's, it's, it's like admitting that, you, that you're that you not a socialist, which <laughs> is just, just not popular. That you're an ethical <laughs> egoist rather than... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. that selfishness could actually be of use. To humanity. you like, no one wants to
0: have those conversations. I think Anne Rand's fantastic. There we go. I've just admitted it and I've read all of her work.
1: I've read most of Anne Rand's work. I haven't read all of her all of her essays. I will get through it at some point. But I do think she's got some she's got a, ideas worthy of discussion and I think it's quite sad that we're unable to have those discussions because if you even admit that or mention that in sort of the circles that I spend most of my time in. <laughs> do they seriously just, go like really? People will roll their eyes or or dismiss you as an idiot. Without without trying to engage, which is which is which is really silly actually, isn't it? Yeah. So.
0: I found I mean at university as well I mentioned, you know, we were hmm. having one of our kind oh, of you, dissertation that kind of talks.
1: Woman. Yeah. And <laughs> they sit there and they look
0: at it and they say, Oh no, only teenagers read Anne Right. only, and I'm only like,
1: teenage boys is what they will actually tell you. <laughs> I've never even, you see, I've
0: discovered Anne Rand. I read it and I loved it. I loved The Fountainhead. I loved Atlas Shrugged. Um, it took mm. me forever to get through them. I have to be honest. I'd put them they down and pick them up books. and read them again later. But now I'm actually thinking of rereading them because I, I really found a lot of it to be very relevant to the world that we are living in at the moment.
1: Yeah, she had a lot of good points. I think that she's also been reviled by history, like only really a woman can, I suppose, mm. for, for not being a sort of a conformist in the thinking of her time or in the thinking of our age. But I I'm not sure history's been particularly kind to her. I think she's also got quite a bad rap for the sort of hypocrisy of her own personal life. But I suppose, actually, if you read her philosophy a bit more closely, you'll see that maybe maybe the actions she took weren't actually that hypocritical, actually, at the end of the day. There's yeah. <laughs> a
0: woman who did not know her place.
1: Mm. Exactly.
0: I w- yeah, I always think about her. I mean, I suppose because I, I like architecture and that's why Fountainhead really spoke to me because architects have got a completely yeah. different way of thinking. So, I mean, a lot of the people that you know, are they also kind of on the same wavelength as you when it comes to the books that they read? I mean, do you hang out with people who read mainly nonfiction or do you have a... I, some people will only read specific things and then you can't have like a, a spirited discussion about the latest. I mean, I'm not saying God forfend that we say go out and read Fifty Shades of Grey, which I managed to, I think, get through three pages and thought nobody got time for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, never trust a bestseller list.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I look at it and I'm just like, you've got to be joking. This is pure all. But I mean, do you find that a lot of the people that you hang out with will always read the same stuff as you or do you have people who have got like... They can't understand why you read nonfiction when there's so much wonderful fiction to be read as well.
1: Well, I don't really know anyone that has the same sort of breadth of of reading that I do. I know I've got different groups of of friends and colleagues and strangers on the Internet, which is fantastic. That is the nice thing about technology these days. I kind of strip strange friends across different places. But people do tend to either be into sort of serious fiction or into sort of literary fiction or into nonfiction or into more sort of academic type writing or science fiction. They're all very different groups and, and those sort of groups don't tend to to mix together too much. So I because suppose I have different informal book clubs <laughs> meeting in different places, yes, uh, different book, social no, book media apps. Clubs? You mean
0: book clubs, the ones, the, the drinking clubs?
1: I've got one of those, yes. Yes. It's been, it's been a bit dry this year, as you can imagine. Well, yes. So there's, there's no fun if, with books without wine. <laughs>
0: Look, I made the mistake of when I was invited to go to a book club once of actually taking a book along that I was wanting to discuss because I'd watched the. Jane Austen book club on, on film. And I thought, great, I can go and speak to people about books. Fantastic. And all they did was talk about their husbands and get drunk.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, diff- there's different sorts of book clubs, yes. But I, I find the most useful communities there is actually, there's it's quite, there's quite a engaged book reading community on Instagram, if you're able to sort of integrate yourself into that. But then, once again, they they have different pockets. So you'll find the nonfiction readers are, don't really sort of associate with the fiction readers. Mm. And then there's the whole sort of the the new release book club readers, which I'm not particularly interested in, the ones that get like boxes from, from Pan Macmillan or from Jonathan Ball or whatever and they they read whatever they give them. I mean, I, I couldn't actually do that. I'm only really interested in reading things that I want to read, not things that I'm supposed to read.
0: <laughs> who who says what you should and shouldn't read, to be honest with you? I mean, I think if you are a science fiction lover, then you're gonna read everything and fantasy and stuff. Go for it. I mean, if you like it and people look at you and go, That's really weird, shouldn't you be doing that when you're a teenager? That would be the best way to go. But now futurism. Okay, so you're looking at how things can come to be. Do they come to be when it comes to what you've read about a lot of the books saying, well, it could be this, it could be that. How many times are what people are positing actually does it happen?
1: Well, that's actually quite a lot. I mean, if you look at just science fiction itself, how it's informed actual technology and the technologies that we have around us, mm. I think that's really undeniable. So people come up with an impossible idea and, you know, real science then takes those ideas and tries to actualize them. So you've got a feedback loop there. And there's actually quite a lot of very interesting literature about how sort of foresight, that's the work that I kind of do fits in with real science, fits in with science fiction, how there's quite a quite interesting feedback loop going on over there. But I suppose more importantly, the, the ideas you've got to be looking out for are the the big ideas. Because, you know, as old um, John Maynard Keynes used to say, you know, like when you look at the world around you, chances are some economist you've never heard of is responsible for it. You know, mm-hmm. then the world we have is made up by these ideas of these dead economists. And the... What I try and do is try to spot those ideas before they come. <laughs> what, what's coming next? So, I mean, like, it's very important to read those sort of things, to read your Marx, to read your Ayn Rand, because these are the ideas that actually sort of seep into popular consciousness and that sort of become reality from a political sphere. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of drives society. You've got both the, the humanness or the societal sort of decisions that are driving where we're headed next, and then also the technological developments. And you can kind of pick up the, the sort of signs, signposts, and the seeds as to where we headed it if you're looking broadly enough. And that's why I do recommend reading sort of nonfiction too, but also reading a wide range of time of nonfiction. So reading, reading how people were thinking, because authors often put their most sort of unpopular or seditious ideas into the, into characters' voices. And it's very, very interesting to see how, how profound that can be and how Mm. if you read widely enough and broadly enough, you can start to see those patterns and those trajectories.
0: So have patterns from the past come back to play in the future at the moment?
1: Yeah, I'd say, I'd say absolutely. I think, I think once again, I mean, we were speaking about Ayn Rand earlier, but I think it's quite useful because if you look at the sort of things that Silicon Valley has been doing and you look at, and even just the sort of exodus from Silicon Valley to Miami, it's been happening over the last few months. And if you go, if you're fortunate enough to get an invite to go onto Clubhouse, which is like the new voice-based Twitter, mm. and you see the conversations being had, are so many of those ideas were ideas that were around in the 1950s that have been sort of oxygenated now, that people are talking about in private, not necessarily in public. And I think that that's what being a reader gives you a glimpse as to what, what's actually going on in private. So it's conversations you can have. It's much harder to censor a book than it is to sort of sense a social media conversation or a press conference. But mm-hmm. you've, you've got to look carefully at that. And then some of the other ideas that are sort of popping up right now, because I do tend to look quite a lot at the, the future space from an economic lens, is things like universal basic income concepts mm-hmm. that go all the way back to your sort of Henry George, you know, like <laughs> the now come, and, and Martin Luther King, that have yeah. so followed through, through history, what we see is that in times of any sort of crisis, when there's sort of pressure put onto society, those ideas that have been lying around sort of get oxygenated. They've got a chance to to sort of start sprouting. And only people that have been looking for those ideas are have an understanding of what they, what they mean next. Mm. And that's what's so great about sort of mixing nonfiction with fiction, is nonfiction gives you the idea, but fiction, and particularly sort of speculative fiction, gives you a scenario as to how that idea could, should, or should not play out going forward. So...
0: It's food for thought then, and, and I sit and I think, well, a lot of the time, people not reading as much as they used to. Now that there's so many distractions, now there's television, there's um, podcasts, there's audio books, there's all these things. So, the, I mean, I still, for me, I don't have a Kindle. I just really don't. I get very irritated looking at screens. So for me, getting a book is always going to be the best way to go. Are you like that as well? Or do you read a lot on, on your screen?
1: I read mostly with with softcover books. I don't like hardcover books either. Mm. I find them uncomfortable. But mm. I generally do like a, a paperback copy. I do read on my Kindle if I can't get copies, particularly of the, the more sort of obscure nonfiction texts that I'm interested in mm. reading. There's often nowhere to get them. And particularly in South Africa, if you want to, to sort of import a book, if you're going to go to a bookseller, they'll they'll charge you sometimes over a thousand rand for 300 Page book, which is just you know that's not yeah, that's hectic, not worthwhile yeah. doing. So yeah. if the if the price doesn't make sense or if it's not available, then I do read on my on my Kindle sometimes. I do prefer the, the the paperback for for lots of reasons. I mean, like neurologically, you do retain more information not looking at a screen because the white light's quite distracting to your brain, and also it's it's less distracting. So if you're sitting down with a book, you're sitting down with a book. It's a sort of tangible action, mm-hmm. and I, I definitely say that. I mean, like in terms of different types of accumulating information, you like you said, podcasts. So... <laughs> or, you know, looking at articles online or whatever the case is, um, reading is still the fastest way to accumulate information, to acquire knowledge until mm. we can actually do the sort of brain chips in your brain thing if the features are going to be right there, which is, is highly yeah, speculative. I thought we had chips already. I mean, it's not coming from like having an uh,
0: immunity injection. Yeah. What do you I mean, the Until sense? we
1: can literally sort of download information directly yeah. into our brains. Reading is the quickest way to acquire acquire knowledge and it's also the best way to, to, to retain it. Yeah, I was going to acquire and retain. Like I, if, I, if I listen to something thing i'm not particularly good at listening to anyone else i mean i know this i know this i've went to school i went to university I've, I've sat in many meetings i mean you can talk to me and if i my consciousness is always more more attracted to the written word i know people have different learning styles but uh for, for both concentration for attention and for speed of acquisition you can read a lot faster than you can process mm. like audio
0: I think that listening to it again after you've read it is something that, that, that maybe enhance your attention. Yes yeah.
1: absolutely. But I mean, do you listen to podcasts? Very occasionally, it's that I get distracted when I listen to podcasts, and I can always find something to look at or to, or to read instead. Even, even like television or watching screens. I always I, I find my attention wanders very, very quickly mm. through those sort of stimuli.
0: So would you listen to podcasts like books that have been read? or not really because you're still not taking it not in. Not
1: really. I would say it doesn't really count if you're listening to audiobooks. Sorry guys. <laughs> because and there's reasons for that. It's because as I said, like your your attention does wander mm. whereas when you're reading a book it's very sort of, you know, you, that that would be the sort of primary filter. But also because reading yourself is an active act whereas being read to is a passive act. So it's a very it's a very different experience.
0: Do you take any Um, notice or, or, or put any credence in kind of the lists of books that people are suggesting that you read, people that you don't necessarily know. So, I mean, if you go on, say, if you happen to go to a podcast where they're saying, oh, you should read this book because would you listen to that podcast to see what the book is about before you would go out and actually get it? Or would you rather have friends and people who's well obviously we're all going to take our friends who know what they're talking about advice first but I mean it's it's a case of like in podcasting here we are doing one and it's a thing that people a lot of the time don't have time to sit down and read
1: yeah but I would argue then if you've got time to sit down and listen to a two-hour-long podcast you've got time to sit down and read no, But then when you're reading you research.
0: have to be involved with the reading if you're listening yeah. to a podcast or you're listening to an audio book you can still do things like knit.
1: drive your car there's times when that's useful like for things like driving and commuting then then absolutely but i must say over the sort of lockdown sort of periods i haven't done much listening of podcasts but um, i'm sure if i when we get back to commuting at some point i'll probably do a bit more of that Mm. because it's still still nice to to have some way of getting information in that has been a little bit more curated than perhaps a sort of live talk show for me i would much prefer to to sort of do the reading myself and there are people that I sort of listen to that are full recommendations. In fact, there's one actual podcast that's quite interesting in the reading space called Backlisted. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It just looks at really obscure books and I've got some really good recommendations from there. From mm-hmm. Andy Miller, who's a super reader. He probably gets, I think he reads around about two, 300 books a year. I,
0: I aim to do that, but I think I'd need to move back somewhere like Sadoana and, and I have I think he my reads most of them for
1: his, for his actual job. For his job, he works yeah. for a publisher. So I think he reads, he's a reader for <laughs> I want for a to work for a publisher and just
0: read books and say, you know, give this me is the good, books. This is bad. No, not even that. It's a case of like, you know, just check through it, sub it for us and see if there's any mistakes, because that's one thing that drives me nuts. If I'm reading something, and there's a mistake in it. I immediately will like send a message off to them going, do you realize on page 43 of this particular book, this is spelt wrong? <laughs> I'm that person, which is awful. Uh, but <laughs> what books have you, I mean, because we see you on, on, on social media kind of things and on, on your, uh, we're going to talk about what, where you put out your reviews, where you put out what you're reading, because there's a hand with the book this is a book that I'm reading. This is what it's about. What is on your list at the moment coming up that you're going to be putting out on and where can people find your recommendations?
1: Okay, there's a couple of places. I write a column for Biz Community where I take nonfiction books and then we write about what the what the business lesson comes out of it, which kind of shows how I approach the the work that mm. I do. And that's called Pulp Nonfiction. So there's a column there that you can go check oh, out. Nice. It comes out on Mondays. Like it. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's very short. So they short like it takes takes sort of like practical business lessons mm. from a sort of a branding, marketing, entrepreneurship lens applied to to very obscure texts. So looking at things like science fiction or fiction or Really old sort of texts and, and seeing how, how how it relates to business today. Otherwise, I've got a I've got a blog where I put up some of some of the books I've been reading, but that tends to be more the non fiction stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's really just to showcase the the ideas that I'm playing with at the moment for my clients. So that's over at my name barbaraandroethwilliams So you can have a look there, and uh, I do post probably probably one or two reviews a month, but that would only be things that I would recommend that has sort of some an idea that has some sort of weight behind it that relates to the work that i'm doing
0: okay so what is on your bedside table
1: what's on my bedside table right now i'm reading the the end of history which is probably like 20 years too late but it's one of those ideas that cycled back in time yes <laughs> that that everyone seems to be to looking at and then i what is that about Oh, it's a nonfiction piece. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, I think. I'm probably butchering his name. We can talk about pronunciation. Pronunciations, yes. (laughs) But anyway, he wrote the text saying that basically history was at an end because we couldn't perfect on liberal democracy, and he's come back into attention quite a lot now because, of course, we've seen fractures and cracks and mm. sort of liberal democratic projects. So he's been raked across the cults for being wrong. But at the same time, people in my sort of line of work of saying that's only because people haven't read his work closely enough. That isn't really what he's saying. He's not saying that that's going to maintain, but rather than that, we actually can't do better than that. So I'm reading it for myself because I don't like to be one of those people that wants to debate ideas that I haven't actually sat into. down with myself because yeah. that seems to be a, a lot of problem. But as you're saying, you know, like people pick up authors, they say they're a bad person, they're a good person, they're good to read or not. But if you haven't actually read it yourself, you don't really you get shouldn't. to have an opinion. No, no, you don't
0: get to have an opinion. It's like if, if you never listened to Pink Floyd, but you say, oh, Pink Floyd, they're so like, you know, exactly. of the 70s. But you've never listened to it. I'm sitting there and thinking, how can you be so judgmental when you haven't even listened or read it or anything? People should really just like get off their high horses. Now, but going back to because that was a funny thing. and uh, I admit that I've just been binge watching How I Met Your Mother because people had said, watch it. And I thought, Ugh. you know what it's like? Everybody says, oh, you should watch this on TV. And then you sit there and think, Ugh, I don't know. And then you get into it and you carry on watching it and it's fantastic. So there, this uh, the main, one of the main characters, he doesn't know how to pronounce a particular word. Oh, yes. So he pronounces it as he reads it in his head because he's never heard the word said. However, how the word chameleon has never actually been something he's heard in his real life, I don't know. But there are some obscure words that you might not use in everyday language. Because I mean, if you think about it in England, they say that the majority of people in England alone have only got a working knowledge of between five and 10,000 words. And there are over 300,000 words that can be used in the English language, and it's, it's growing, not exponentially, but it's growing every year because they allow silly words like tweets and all of that to be included in the dictionary. What are some of the words that you have never heard used in language before and you have your own way of saying it, and then you find out it's completely wrong. Has that happened to you?
1: It's happened to me, but I can't think of any particular examples because that does it does happen, especially if you read older literature. You, so, you tend to sort of pick up old English words, mm. and then you think you know what they are, and then you sort of start speaking to them, to people, and they look at you quite strangely. <laughs> it has happened to me on many occasions, but I can't, I can't think of any off the, off the top of my head.
0: No, I have this problem with a couple of teenagers where I sit there and I use these words, and they look at me and they're like, what does that mean? <laughs> because I, I use words that not they don't come up in everyday language, but it is in, it's an interesting thing that you sit there and you read and even people's names. You sit there and we, we we were talking about you know the Porsche versus Porsche debate, and you can go onto the Porsche website or the Moet website <laughs> where they have the how do you say this word and it tells you. But people will still fight with you until they are blue in the face that you're saying it wrong. It's Moet. <laughs> you have people saying, oh, no, you've pronounced that completely wrong?
1: People do, but people tend not to correct me. People tend to just accept what I say, which is probably probably a bad thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like that. I wish everybody would just accept everything I say as well. <laughs> All right, so you're saying that we have to read widely. Which is what I'm getting from you. Okay. Not particularly in the science fiction field, unless it's actually going to things that can be useful for the future.
1: There's a lot of bad science fiction out there. I'll tell oh, you what. Gosh. I've read a lot of it. I've read most of it. And not very much is great to read, but they always have good ideas. So I feel uh, like obligated to, to read it for the idea.
0: Be careful of you, you when it comes back. To, when it comes to the feminists, okay, some of those feminists are really hectic. Their views of what is a utopia actually is quite dystopian.
1: Well, I love that because there's, there's no such thing as a utopia unless you can escape from it. So utopia is a self-eating sort of snake, you know? There is no guess. there is no utopia. Yeah, but, but they <laughs> really Any imposed hectic. utopia is a dystopia, whatever it is. I think anything that's, that's imposed. anarchy, states, and utopia, you know, like that. <laughs> you,
0: you shouldn't, Carter, you should not agree with the government, you should be in, it's it's the whole um, atheist versus Christian conversation anything as totalizing well.
1: totalizing is dystopian. So anybody and who any talks about, about, you should not be a Christian,
0: or you should not be an atheist, that's one of the things. Have I'm you just, read like, the
1: actual utopia, Thomas Moyer? Yes, years ago. Oh my goodness, that's a nightmare and a half.
0: <laughs> that's what I'm saying utopia for one is dystopia for somebody else but me a, a utopian world is definitely one where I've got lots of books and yeah. good books
1: utopia is personal so we can all have our own that's the, how often the do Robert Nozak idea how often
0: would you reread a book
1: it depends what what the book is so, I mean, like those sort of like, as you saying, like Alice in Wonderland or The Little Prince, those sort of like short plastic reads, probably read them a few times over, probably read them to my daughter too. So, mm. but I'd say typically I don't read, reread that much, but if, but I've got, I've got sort of favorites that I do come back to from time to time. There's quite, probably quite a few, a good few hundred books that I've read two or three times.
0: Okay. So we're only getting two books from you that would go with you to a desert island. Are the two books that people must read
1: again? I gave you three there. So Economics in One Lesson, which I'm sure most of your readers will roll their eyes at, but you should read it anyway. I'm writing it down. <laughs> Hang on,
0: Economics in One Lesson.
1: Yes, the the true believer. That'd be Eric Hofford's True Believer. And and the Economics in One Lesson is Henry Hazlitt. And then the remains of the day I think is I think is great. And I'll give you one for younger readers that I think yes. more people should read is Momo or Momo, I don't know how to pronounce that either, because that's written by a European. But it's the same author as The NeverEnding Story. But very few people have heard of Momo Momo. <laughs>
0: I have to be honest, I haven't either. And I love The never Ending Story. story. So I will, I will actually get that one in as yeah, well. So don't, I, don't
1: take my pronunciation. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're welcome to write in. <laughs> Momo. Momo, M-O-M-O. And mm. it's a fascinating story and very relevant. And I think that adults will enjoy reading it too. So it's about time and life and very interesting ideas.
0: Well, there's a lot of food for thought. A lot of things to think about and get out there and buy and read and become well-informed, but actually go out and buy the book and read it.
1: Yes, read it and and read for yourself. Don't read what other people are reading. Like, you know, that, that actually makes you less interesting. That's, that's the joy of being a reader is you become a more interesting person because you accumulate interesting ideas. And you're not going to be interesting if you're just reading the same book that everyone else read last year because everyone else read it.
0: And on that thought, I think we're going to say thank you very much because there's nothing we can say that's even better than that. Bronwyn, thank you very much. Much for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more from you. Keep us updated with what books you've got. Um, you've come across that you say if you've got to read this. We will we'll do something with it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.